Welcome to episode 125 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. Today, we get to speak to retired agent Keith Tolhurst, who served in the FBI for 24 years. During his career, he investigated kidnapping, interstate shipment theft, civil rights, hate crimes, gangs, domestic terrorism, murder, sex crimes, bank robberies, and fugitives. In this episode, he reviews the case of the Grand Canyon prison escapee, Danny Ray Horning, who led the FBI and law enforcement partners on the largest fugitive manhunt in Arizona. The investigation lasted 54 days and used specially trained tracking dogs. The case and Keith Tolhurst have been featured on the FBI's shows Discovery ID, FBI Criminal Pursuits, and the old FBI Files. As the FBI Phoenix Division's senior SWAT team leader and SWAT coordinator for the entire state of Arizona, Keith Tolhurst was involved in every aspect of crisis management to include command post procedures, critical infrastructure threats, dignitary protection, special events, security assessments, and hostage situations. Keith was nominated for the FBI Medal of Bravery for operations outside of the United States. He was a principal firearms and tactical instructor and designated as an FBI master police instructor, providing firearms and tactics training around the world to thousands of students from international, military, state, local, and tribal police agencies. Since his retirement from the FBI, Keith has been employed as an independent contractor for the Bureau for the past seven years, providing to FBI agents classified and unclassified instruction related to advanced human intelligence. Keith Tolhurst is the founder of Tolhurst International, a licensed private investigations firm that also provides security consultants, customizable training courses, and guest speaker services. This was a really interesting interview for me because I wasn't aware of Keith's knowledge of trained tracking dogs. And so when we got to that part, I found it fascinating. And I think you will too. But before we get to the interview, I just want to remind you that for the month of July 2018, I am having my It's a Boy, It's a Book giveaway. The giveaway consists of a signed copy of my latest FBI crime novel, Greedy Givers, an infant onesie for your future FBI agent, an FBI silhouette target apron, an FBI challenge coin, lapel pins, and a sticker, button, and cards for FBI retired case file review. If you're already a member of my reader team, you are automatically entered into the giveaway. If you're not yet a member, then all you need to do is to go to my website, jerrywilliams.com, and sign up when you see the pop-up. Details about the giveaway can be found in my July reader team email. When you sign up for my reader team, once a month, I'll send you a digest 
of the podcast episodes for that month so you can access the photos and newspaper links, my crime fiction recommendations, and I'll keep you up to date on the FBI and books, TV, and movies. I don't have ads on this podcast, nor do I have a Patreon account. But if you're enjoying the episodes, 125 to date, and you want to support the podcast, you can do so by picking up a copy of my crime novels, Pay to Play and Greedy Givers, available at Amazon.com. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Thank you. Now here's the show. I am excited to introduce my guest, Keith Tolhurst. Hi, Keith. Hi, how are you, Jerry? I'm doing great. Now, I got to give producer credit to our mutual friend, Judy Tyler, who told me about your case. Judy's a great person. I work with her all the time. Yeah, she's been on the show twice. And as a matter of fact, she's going to come on a third time because one of her... um, informants from one of her drug cases uh, contacted her. He heard about the show and he wants to come on with her to talk about the case from, you know, the informant side and from her side. And I thought, what a great idea. So we'll do that later this summer. Sounds good. So this particular case that she told me about, I said, yes, I said, I got to get Keith on to talk about it. And it's about an investigation. I, I guess it still would be in a sense a fugitive investigation, but it's of a Prison escapee, Danny Ray Horney. That's correct. Yeah, Danny Ray was uh, was a prisoner in uh, the Florence uh, State Prison in Arizona. Before we start on the case, could you tell us why he was in prison? Because I want to make sure that we all have a good idea who this guy is and why he's so dangerous and why he needs to get back in prison. Sure. Uh, well, Danny Ray Horning was in prison uh, on four life sentences. I think it was uh, something like 737 years is what he was supposed to be serving. It was for uh, armed robbery, aggravated assault, um, kidnapping, burglary. He'd done a bank robbery in uh, in Salt Lake City. He'd done uh, he stole a truck in Ohio. I think he uh, also robbed a, a bank in Ohio and Oregon. He thought he kind of thought he was a that was his thing was doing bank robberies and then. Um, he was suspected of a murder, although he, that's not why he was in jail. Um, he was suspected of a murder that had occurred in California about a year earlier where a body had been found of an individual that uh, had been chopped up into pieces. He cut his head, his arms and legs off, uh, put them in plastic bags and threw them in the San Juan Keen River in, in California. And that was for a robbery. He was just taking money off this guy who was a fisherman and kept a lot of money in his house. And he had been nice enough to ask Danny Ray to do some side job work for him. And he kind of took advantage of that and then killed the guy. Um, at the time, he hadn't been charged with murder, though. That's, that's not why he was in jail. He ultimately ended up in Arizona, going to the Arizona State Prison in Florence for a bank robbery that he had committed in Winslow, Arizona. And um, he went in uh, March 22nd of 1991. I think he was 33 years old at the time. Sure. He's in state prison. You know, usually bank robbery is uh, a federal crime. Is there a particular reason why he wasn't in federal prison and, and that matter wasn't handled by uh, yeah, at the federal level? 
Yeah, no, I uh, I think it's because he had so many other charges that they wanted to combine them all together. They just didn't they just didn't put him in the federal system for some reason. That was something I can't really speak to because he was already in prison before we got involved with it. Um, the kind of the federal nexus of the other states, uh, I think they just all kind of made some state agreement. Probably as far as prosecution, uh, it was a better deal for them to put him in state. All right. Well, one other question, because we do want you to get started with the, the story, and I keep stopping you. But one other question is, could you explain to everyone why the FBI is involved in this prison escape investigation? Sure. So what happened when he initially escaped, um, there, were, there were a few things that happened. One at the time that he escaped in 1992, uh, the FBI in Phoenix had a very, very successful fugitive task force, which I was a member of. Another member of it was uh, an individual named Doug Schuster, and he worked for Department of Corrections. So as soon as he realized that there was this escape, he figured we would probably be the best ones to handle it. Uh, we also found that there was some some notes inside the prison uh, in his cell that had indicated that he had a grudge against the Winslow Police Department, that he may want to go back after the people that put him in all these bank robberies and and uh, he had ties out of state because of the uh, his family was in California and other things. So the Fugitive Task Force got assigned to do it, and I got assigned to it just because they had an out-of-state nexus that he had a lot of other areas. His life was really uh, in California uh, as well as Arizona, and we didn't know exactly where we were going, but we were concerned that, that he was traveling maybe to win an assault on a police officer uh, as well. So we wanted to uh, we wanted to catch him as quick as as we could because he wasn't out of jail to to run away. It seemed like he was more out of the jail uh, on a grudge, uh, the vengeance towards law enforcement. Okay, so that definitely sounds like somebody you want to get off the streets and and back uh, behind bars. Yeah, definitely. I mean, he was uh, we as the investigation unfolded, we had learned that previous to all of this um, that he had also been uh, part of a uh, a crabbing boat. He was hired as a cook on a crabbing boat uh, in Alaska, and the crabbing boat went out to sea. It was out there for about two days, and as the cook, all he was serving was peanut butter sandwiches. And the the captain of the boat said, "This is ridiculous. You can't just give my my men peanut butter sandwiches. They work hard on a crabbing boat. They need more than this." He confessed that he didn't know how to cook. So the captain turned around and brought him back to shore, which cost him a lot of money. He was pretty irritated about it. Dropped off uh, Danny Ray on the pier and uh, turned away and went back out to sea in Alaska to, with all these big empty crab containers on the, you know, stacked up on his boat. And the the boat uh, sank and everyone died. The belief is, obviously they can't prove it with the boat missing and everybody dead, but Danny Ray was the only one that survived it because he was put to shore. And they think what he did is he might have cut some of the grommets or, or something as far as the pump that uh, that let the water uh, pump off the boat. And the boat uh, capsized and sank immediately without even time to uh, make a distress call. And they think he did that out of, uh, out of vengeance against these people for putting him off the boat. Wow. Okay. <laughs> now I really, really want to hear how he was captured. So how did he escape? Well, uh, on May 12th of 1992, he'd only been in jail for about a year in Arizona. He uh, 
he actually got a uh, a uniform from a med tech uniform that was in the prison, put the med tech uniform on and uh, had the med tech badge and just walked out the door uh, and kind of got uh, escaped uh, from Florence by uh, just pretending to be an employee. Uh, and then he was on the run. And that's when the Fugitive Task Force in Phoenix learned about him and began your investigation. Yeah, that's correct. So we started our investigation, uh, I think, on the probably on the 12th or the 13th, the day he got out. We were immediately called on it. Um, of course, the first thing they did is the uh, Department of Corrections has bloodhounds. They started searching the area, the desert area around Florence right away to see if they could pick up a scent on that. Um, I think Ken Vance was the dog handler at the time. Uh, very good dog handler. Uh, Arizona has some very good dogs for, with the Department of Corrections, and they started working on that. Um, we got called, and I started going into history to try to find out where he might go, what he might do, and uh, um, started doing background on his family in California and some of the other things. Uh, what happened next was on the 14th of May, which was about two days later, um, a house was burglarized and some guns were stolen. And uh, when that happened, uh, we kind of figured that that might have been him. We uh, we started to move our search in the direction towards where the burglary was. And in kind of a long story short, that turned into his M.O. throughout. And I'll describe it as we go. But he started burglarizing houses to to get supplies. He started uh, approaching campers. And from around June third to the 21st or so, we were having tons of sightings of where he was. Uh, it was a very high-profile news case, and uh, during all these sightings, he broke into a bunch of cabins in the beginning of June, stealing uh, stealing food and, and other things. He, he ended up stealing a, a pickup truck from somebody's cabin, and a lot of people had been painting him in the media as kind of a modern-day Rambo. This guy survives on his own and lives out in the desert and lives in the mountains and the woods and, and he's a survivalist and, and they really had a very romantic picture of, of who he was. But the fact was he was breaking into houses, feeling what he could get. Um, and, and his background, they said he had an army background that he was, uh, you know, trained in, in survival and everything. But he, he was actually only a, an E2 in the army, which is like a private first class. He'd only served 11 months. Uh, he had gotten an expeditious just discharge thrown out for being immature and having poor performance. Um, he, he really wasn't very good in the military. Uh, his, his claim to fame was he was like on latrine orderly duty and stuff like that. He, he didn't get along with the military very well. So it's not like he was a highly trained guy that they, the media was painting him as, but it just sounded better because he was out on the run. So instead of living off the land and being like a Rambo, he really was just a common thief breaking into houses and stealing what he could to survive. Exactly. This, this guy wasn't eating berries and, and uh, making things out of wood and things like that. He started just approaching campers and breaking into places in between. Uh, so after we discovered the burglaries, one of the burglars, uh, he had a vehicle he had stolen. And we found the vehicle on, uh, I think, about the 20th of June in the cabin that he had sold the vehicle from, he had left a note uh, to tell the FBI to stop chasing me uh, because the, it was all in the media. I'm sure he was seeing some of that you know, because of all the burglars he had done. By that time, we had a lot of dogs that were available. Uh, we hadn't been using them. I think DOC had up to like 20 dogs that they were using. And when they found the vehicle that he had stolen from that cabin, 
I think that was on June 20th, he fleed into the woods and and took off, left a note saying, I'm sorry, I took your truck and drove it hard. You know, that got in the media and it instilled that whole Rambo-type, you know, uh, good guy gone bad out in the woods kind of thing because he was leaving notes, you know, apologizing to people he had taken things from, you know, almost like a Robin Hood. Uh, but it really wasn't anything like that. He was he was leaving notes like that, and I think part of it was just because he was a little dysfunctional the way he communicated with people. Next thing I think that happened was he, he was approaching campers that were out in the Christopher Creek area uh, of Arizona, which is a, it's north of Phoenix, south of Flagstaff, and it's a it's a very wooded area. A lot of people go there to uh, um, to fish and to to camp and hike. Uh, beautiful area. Uh, there's a place, Mormon Lake, up around in there. And he was approaching those campers, uh, and he just walk up to a campsite and ask people, hey, can you give me a soda? Uh, and they would. And he'd talk to them, and he had his little backpack, and he'd walk away. He didn't, didn't threaten any of those people, didn't do anything, but he was, he was thirsty, and he just needed a way to get some drinks, and people started reporting it. So after the reports started coming in that he was approaching campers, I set up some of our SWAT team members in tents in the same area in campgrounds, hoping that he would approach them. Uh, so we kind of had uh, fake campers out in the area uh, trying to lure him in so we could catch him that way. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. What happened instead is now we're up to about June 25th. What happened then is he kidnapped two people, a man and a woman. They were uh, co-employees, uh, and they... Uh, he kidnapped them in their car and drove them to the Grand Canyon, uh, which is about 75 miles from where they were. If they, when they got to the Grand Canyon, he took them into El Tobar Lodge, which is probably, well, definitely the nicest facility in the Grand Canyon. It's a beautiful lodge right on the edge of the Grand Canyon. Uh, took them inside the lodge, uh, made, kept, kidnapped them, in, uh, kept them overnight, told them when he got them in the bed, put a bolt up against the wall, said the bed was, you know, it creaked a lot because of the springs. And he said, I'll hear you if you move, so don't move. I need to get some sleep. Ordered room service and had a big meal while he was in there and tried. was trying to get some rest because he was extremely hungry. Uh, he'd been on the run for a long time and really wasn't doing well as far as uh, his survival techniques. Trying to, trying to, so he needed a place to eat and rest and get some uh, nourishment. But why next, why kidnap them? Why why would he kidnap them and then, you know, take them to this lodge? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Why not just take the car? Yeah. At the time it didn't make sense to us either. Uh well we didn't know that it happened until after the fact, but we didn't we didn't really know what his goal was to kidnap, but it turns out later and you as as I go along here, is what happened was he he had a plan to kidnap even more people and then try to hold hostages and negotiate for money and uh, the release of his brother. And that's kind of what uh, that's kind of what I think his ultimate goal was, is that's why he kidnapped them. And, and he also took them because he still needed things. The next day, he actually had them take him out and buy some uh, camping gear and things, supplies that he needed, because he was basically on the run with nothing. Uh, so he needed clothes and all that kind of stuff that he hadn't already already things he hadn't stolen out of the burglaries. So he was looking for them. They spent, I don't know, $100 on them or something like that to, uh, and what, to buy what some was, supplies. And what was the threat? I mean, did he have a gun? Did he have a knife? Why yeah, so was sorry, he able to yeah, get away with that? 
during the burglaries back in May, the house burglaries, we knew that he had stolen guns. So, uh, so our whole approach on him from May on was that he was armed and dangerous again. We knew that he was suspected of the, the brutal murder of the guy in, in California. Uh, uh, I, I think I, I don't know if I mentioned he had also molested his daughter in the past. So he had a, a history of not a whole lot of conscience, not a whole lot of care about anything but himself. So we consider him very dangerous uh, because of the guns that he had uh, that we knew were stolen and that he was, you know, basically fleeing, making contact with the public. So the next thing that, that uh, after he was approaching the campers, he had kidnapped these two people and gotten, gotten El Tovar Lodge. Um, and you have to understand, it sounds like a long time that he's been on the run out in the woods. And, and another reason a lot of people thought he was a great survivalist is because this, is, this has been a couple of weeks now that we hadn't found him. Uh, what people don't understand is in uh, Flagstaff, Arizona, is in Coconino County, which the Coconino County Forest is the second largest forest in the United States. Now, a lot of people don't see Arizona that way, but it, it's a huge forest. Uh, the Grand Canyon is like 19,000 square miles. It's just a huge area, and we're looking for basically a needle in a haystack trying to find this guy. Uh, we're also approaching the 4th of July weekend, which is the busiest weekend for the Grand Canyon tourism trade in the whole year. And there were, I think they said they averaged something like 18,000 people a day uh, going in and out of the Grand Canyon. So that's that's kind of what we were up against. It was very, very huge, uh, very large uh, country that we were trying to find this guy in. And there was also a lot of people in the Grand Canyon area. So we were kind of between those two things. And I think that's why we were getting sightings. Some of them, obviously, when you have a hunt like this, a lot of sightings are bad. So we're spending a lot of resources looking at sightings that were not correct. And unfortunately, as is the case with most sightings, that's where they were. That's not where they are. So uh, I think we had at the time like 400 law enforcement officers involved in the, in the investigation at that point. Uh, trying to see who we could find in the Grand Canyon uh, area uh, now that we knew that. I'm sorry, uh, I'm getting ahead of myself. We didn't know yet that he was in the El Tovar Lodge. The next thing that had happened is he had left the El Tovar Lodge and tried to kidnap a few more people. There was a family of six, and this was June 26th now, after he had, the day after he kidnapped the first two. He kept those two with him. He tried to go kidnap six more in a parking lot and that had a travel trailer. And he told the two that were in the car, don't leave or I'll kill people out in public here if you leave. So the two that had previously been kidnapped stayed in their car. They were afraid if they left, they would be responsible for all these deaths that might occur. And he went over to this father of six. That, or father of uh, six in the family, then he went to them and said, I want to see your travel trailer. I'd like to say, I've always thought about getting one. So he actually took his two previous captives, went into the travel trailer with them, and got a tour of the travel trailer from the father. When that happened, he then pulled his gun and told the father that, you know, we're, uh, we're taking this. Call your family back in. Uh, one of the, one of the sons, saw the gun before he got in the travel trailer and yelled, told, warned his dad that the guy had a gun and ran away. Then it was kind of like chaos. Everybody ran every different direction. And he failed at getting those six people, but he still had his two. 
So he got back in the car with them and fled without getting those other people. Is that when you found out that he's at the Grand Canyon? Because before this, you still were looking for him 75 miles away, right? Correct. So what happened was we we still hadn't found that out. I mean, the, the word came out, the police, re, police reported that this had just happened. But almost instantaneous to that, a park ranger had seen the vehicle and tried to uh, tried to approach him. When the ranger spotted the vehicle, uh, Horning shot at the park ranger. Uh, and then he had driven down a road that was a dead end, so couldn't go anywhere. He shot at the park ranger and ran out in the woods, leaving his two hostages behind. Now, Horning is alone, no longer has hostages, but we know he has a weapon. And the park ranger made the call that here he is, he knows, we know that's Horning. And now everybody is heading for the, basically the freshest scent. We're going to see if we can get him from when he just left in that car. And things have changed a lot now because now for sure you know he's willing to, you know, to shoot in order to yes. escape. Yes, yes. Because he, now he's fired at law enforcement. Uh, he's fleed out in the woods and we know he's without hostages. But in the car, we find a cassette tape. And on the cassette tape, we listen to it. And that's when Danny Ray say, states in the tape, I have six hostages and I want a million dollars. And I want my brother freed from prison. His brother, by the way, was also in jail for, uh, I think it was sexual molestation of a, of a minor. And he gave a deadline that if you don't do this by June 30th, I'm going to start killing the hostages. Well, what, the thing was, we knew he didn't have any hostages because he just ran out of the wood alone. But he had pre-recorded this tape as a plan that this was something he was going to give up um, to try to get his will. So that's kind of what I was saying earlier. We don't know why he was collecting the hostages, but that's I think that was his ultimate plan. He had this pre-recorded tape uh, of what he was going to do. So the next thing that happened, and now we've got this fresh area. We've got the dogs in route. Uh, like I said, we had tons of dogs by that time. Uh, SWAT teams were en route. Uh, we had helicopters en route. We had everybody pretty much flooding in into the Grand Canyon area. And that's where we started up a command post. We did whatever we could now to try to, to try to push them to, you know, isolate the area. On the 30th of June, that's when we decided to close the Grand Canyon. Uh, we actually only half closed it. We didn't allow more people in. We didn't kick all the people out because that would be too many people flooding the gates at once, and we it would just be too much manpower to try to push everybody out. We didn't really want to create that issue, but we didn't let anyone in, and we set up checkpoints to watch the people as they naturally decided to leave. Yeah, let me get this right. Your investigation closes the Grand Canyon just before mm -hmm. the biggest weekend of the national parks for the whole year. That's correct. In fact, it's only the second time that the Grand Canyon had ever been closed in its history. So, and it was, like you said, it was the biggest tourist time of the year that all these people are now being turned away because wow. we had Danny Ray Horning in the canyon. Wow. It, it was one of those things that was a little bit surreal for the amount of searching we were doing in a place that was a tourist attraction like the Grand Canyon. We had some of our SWAT and hostage rescue team members actually repelling over the over the sides of the Grand Canyon, looking in the caves, areas where he thought we thought he might be hiding. Uh, we were taking helicopters at at basically treetop level and dropping into the canyon, looking at hikers that were going up and down the the whole stretch down into the bottom of the canyon and up. 
the fun part about it, I guess, is we got to see a lot of different views of the Grand Canyon nobody uh, normally gets to see. So that that was interesting. But uh, but we didn't we, but we didn't see uh, Harding during that time. We were sending SWAT operators down in the canyon. It's about a 13 mile hike down to the bottom and back, and and we were sending them along so they could see if one if he was one of the people acting like a hiker. We wanted to make sure that uh, that he wasn't approaching hikers that we were trying to flood the air with that, as well as cover all the leads that we were getting on sightings. And then we were doing a, a grid search uh, with bloodhounds and and everything else. By that point, I had also called in some other bloodhounds that kind of as an aside, my background uh, prior to getting into the FBI, my father is world-renowned for training dogs, uh, bloodhounds and other dogs. So I had grown up with bloodhounds um, uh, at an early age, was very familiar with them. Uh, I contacted through my father a bunch of people that he knew and got two of the best dog handlers that I could find in the country. Uh, one was his name is Billy Kiff out of Kansas, and and the other one's name was Glenn Rimby out of Montana, and they they were flown in as well to assist with the DOC dogs and everybody else, so we could start getting a good search of what's going on. And they they were on the way in at the time uh, to do that. So we had a lot of pressure of things going on in the Grand Canyon. We were searching rooms, making sure that the, you know the hotel rooms that people were okay. There was nobody else being kidnapped because. Now we found out about what had happened at El Tobar Lodge. Uh, and then on the 4th of July, two women from England uh, that were on vacation in the Grand Canyon uh, were kidnapped by Horning. And he wanted to try to now escape the Grand Canyon through through the roadblocks. The interesting thing here as far as the escape is, I guess i kind of telling on myself, one of the errors that we made was, he was going up to the garbage bins that the checkpoint people were using for box lunches to eat, and he was eating the garbage out of the bins. That's how he was surviving through some of these days in the Grand Canyon. We had almost provided him with a little garbage restaurant because we had set up all these checkpoints. And uh, so we kind of aided him a little bit uh, unknowingly that uh, we were providing food out in an area where he might not have otherwise found it. So he had these two women, and got in their car. Uh, what we didn't know at the time is he had now dyed his hair blonde. Uh, he had like an old fishing cap on. Obviously, his clothes had been changed a few times. And he had shaved, cleaned, he was clean shaven now, which all the sightings and everything else didn't have that. So the description at the checkpoints was not accurate. And the photos we were using were probably not the best. The funny thing is a lot of people thought at the time that I looked a little like Danny Ray Horning. So uh, they were you know, give me a, a second look every once in a while. But but he looked totally different with blonde hair. He actually uh, held the women at gunpoint with his, I think he had a 44 Magnum revolver. Uh, he sat in the back seat, the two women in the front, and drove up to a uh, checkpoint to leave the canyon. At the checkpoint, he was pretty cool and collected about it. Uh, told the women not to say anything. He would handle it. Checkpoint people asked what's going on. He said, yeah, we're getting out of here. There's, you know, too much of a mess going on in the Grand Canyon. And uh, and basically just drove out uh, without the checkpoint uh, recognizing who he was, obviously not looking for him to be with two women and not expecting the women to be uh, cooperative as they were. Obviously, they had a gun to them uh, held to their backs. So he got through the checkpoint and started leaving the Grand Canyon and started driving towards Williams, Arizona. Um, as he drove down to Williams, he got uh, – he 
it made him turn off on a side road, which made him a little bit nervous. He made him get out of the car and started walking him out into the woods, which scared these women quite a bit. Um, the funny part about that, I guess, is they had requested, please don't, you know, don't kill us, nothing else. He said, I'm not done. I'm just going to tie you to a tree. I'm going to, you'll be able to get yourself free in a half hour, an hour and get away. But I need some time. Uh, and they said, okay, well, can you leave our suitcases? Cause he was obviously going to steal their car, which he did. He left their, their luggage behind and tied the two of them together to a tree. So they're both facing each other, surrounding a tree. He, he drove off. And they did get loose from the from the ropes, and uh, managed to walk down to a, a gas station nearby. What time of the day was this? Uh, well, they were kidnapped at about 11 a.m. and then they drove down. It probably would have been closer to one or two o'clock by now. By the time he got down to where he was going, uh, they, they were only about an hour south of the Grand Canyon. But I'm not sure exactly what time he exited the Grand Canyon. So I'd, I'd say it's early afternoon that. We get word from the women who had who had gotten to a gas station and and said what happened, and now we were all basically leaving the Grand Canyon at a high rate of speed with helicopters and and suburbans and everything, trying to get down to the last sighting point to see if we could pick up where he had gone. And at the same time, a notice had gone out uh, to the Department of Public Safety that the vehicle that he was driving now and uh, they picked him up on uh, just south of Interstate 40 on I-17. So they recognized the vehicle. They they tried to stop him on the freeway. January Horning again uh, gets into another shootout uh, with Department of Public Safety. He shoots uh, he shoots at the car a few times and then pulls off um, on an exit. It's called Snebley Hill Road, and this is another very remote wooded area with a lot of canyons. We're no longer, now we're about 45 minutes south of the Grand Canyon. We're south of Flagstaff, but still very wooded area. In fact, in Arizona, it's one of the few areas where if you drive there right around sunset, you'll see herds of elk just standing beside the road. I mean, it's a very, very wooded area. There's, there's really not anything there other than some dirt roads and, and a lot of trees and canyons. He, uh, he crashes his car or bails out of his car, uh, at the exit at Snubbly Hill Road in the woods and turns around again and shoots again at uh, um, the DPS officer that had tried to stop him. DPS officer fired back at him but uh, didn't think he hit him and Danny Ray's on the run again back in the woods by himself. So it's getting dark at this, at this point by the time we're getting down to Snubbly Hill Road. It's, uh, it's early evening. And we start setting up a command post. We're going to have to do a, a grid search, uh, see if we can figure out where he went from there. Uh, that's where I probably failed in my, uh, my expertise as a dog handler, where I had done that my whole life with my father and things like that, is it was dark. I'm looking into the woods, and there was one white light visible in 360 degrees of looking around one white light and I asked what that light was and one of the local officers told me that that was Sedona. I said, well, that's where he's going. And because I just knew historically that people head for the light when they don't know where they are, they have to, they have to have something to run towards. They, unless they are a super Rambo and can navigate by the stars, most people tend to run towards the light because they know they'll find something there. 
uh, and the Nazis going to run off into the woods forever. They told me that's not possible. That he would have to cross Jack's Canyon, which is a huge canyon, basically straight drop cliffs. Um, you, you walk up in the trees and all of a sudden it just drops off, uh, a hundred or so feet down. Cause there's but no way he, he know get that? through there. But he Pardon? didn't know that. I take it no, that. No, no, Danny Ray doesn't know that at all. Um, okay. but the, the locals knew that he, they just didn't feel he would be able to get to that light based on the fact that he would have to cross this canyon to do that. Um, so I, I, uh, I heeded their advice. We, we started on our searches, um, in kind of a grid fashion with dogs, different different ways. We had SWAT teams actually running with all their gear with the dog handlers every time we sent one out, searching in a grid fashion to see what we could find and see if we could pick up his trail. Our goal was to push him all night. We weren't going to let him sleep. We weren't going to let him get any rest. And we were going to push him as long as we could, as hard as we could. So he had to keep moving. And we figured we were just going to be a matter of will then. We were going to run him into the ground. That kept happening until about, I think it was about 10, 11 p.m. at night, we got um, a lead. We were getting a lot of leads in our command post of sightings still, and people thought this and, and that. And a lot of the leads were nothing. But we got a lead that there was a guy down near Sedona, and uh, I think that it was uh, the village of Oak Creek, where somebody was uh, on a porch asking for water. And... Husband and wife answered the, the door. The wife, I think, recognized him and made the phone call to the police saying, I think this is him. But we were getting a lot of calls like that. So we didn't want to ignore any of them, but we didn't necessarily say this is him and drop our command post and move there. But we did send a, a dog team and a Border Patrol officer to that lead, just like we were sending dog teams from every different agency. It just happened to be that agency that got picked to go do that lead. They They got down to... Oak Creek, and uh, I guess I should back up a little bit. Throughout this whole search, Danny Ray Horning had been very vocal about how he would never be taken alive. It's something he he wouldn't do before he escaped, everything else. He'd never be taken alive again. He's not going back to prison. And he was very, a lot of bravado in the way he spoke about how he would take on, you know, the law enforcement basically in a in a blaze, blaze of gunfire, and that's how it would end. And he was kind of following along that to a certain extent every time he had an interaction with police because he was shooting at him. This is, I think, three times now that he had been in shootouts with the police during this uh, manhunt. When the uh, Border Patrol officers and, and, and Dog Patrol got to him uh, under the, under the uh, porch, he was done. The guy was basically just asking for food and water. Uh, he didn't put up any kind of a fight. He had been beaten basically and was given up and said just he just wanted to sleep he just wanted to have some rest uh we we put him back in the car we brought him back up to our original command post was we let the dogs go up to him and give him a lick because we wanted the dogs to complete their their trail that they had been working on and uh and he he had nothing to say no wise comments no no uh um bravado nothing against law enforcement he just sat there quiet and uh and then was back in custody uh, that night. So he got he finally got arrested that evening on the 4th of July. It wasn't until uh, 1995 uh, they finally, uh, they had transferred him from Florence Prison where he started uh, back to California. 
because of the murder that he committed in 1990 of Sammy McCullough. So he went back to and was sentenced to death on July 26, 1995. And to my knowledge, I, I know as of last year, I haven't checked as of today, but uh, as of last year, he'd done, uh, he's been doing 24 years now on death row in California, still awaiting, uh, still awaiting death. So that's, that's, that's pretty much how Horning ended up kind of back where he was. And I guess the thing I, I hate to see is how all the media came out on how redeeming this guy was as a Rambo when, when he was just a guy that was trying to run away. One of the things that I just keep thinking about is, you know, your experience with the bloodhounds and how they work. So what was it that you had of his? Because, you know, I don't know anything about this other than what I see on TV, but it's my understanding that you give them a piece of clothing or something so they can Correct. get a scent to alert to. So it's just because you know about it, I'm curious. Could you, could you tell us a little bit more about how all of that worked? Sure. So what we did, we, we took all the remaining clothes that were left behind in the prison in uh, um, Florence where all the things he had left behind, all those clothes were bagged up and kept um, pristine so no other people were touching them. And we would use those, kind of dole them out to dog handler teams so they could they could use that to try to start their search. The other thing dogs can do is if you have a place in the woods where there's no people, and say between one telephone and another telephone pole, you know that they had somebody had run into the woods. The dog can go by that area and will pick up the scent of the only person that went that way and and start trailing them that way. So there's a lot of little things that dogs can do. Uh, even even the areas that he was burglarizing and changing clothes, we would we would try to collect those clothes. And dogs are pretty good at at uh, finding the missing. In other words, even if, uh, let's say you had uh, one shirt that two different people had worn, but one of those people uh, was still there and you had them, the other person had run away. If you sent the dog on the shirt and then they smell the person that's still there, they know that they're looking for the scent of the one that isn't because they already finished, successfully finished finding the first one. He's right there. It's called the missing member method. So they look for the one that's missing out of the scent that's on those clothes. So there's a lot of different ways dogs like that can do that. It's not as easy as a lot of people think because dogs, the reason we had SWAT teams running on both sides, of course, when a dog runs, he's running where the scent is based on wind, not necessarily the nice little path that the the subject ran down. So a lot of times, uh, I know in the past, I've had cases where I'd be chasing somebody with a dog and we'd catch him, and I'd look at him, and the guy would be wet up to his ankles for crossing the creek. And I'd be wet up to my chest because the the wind and the and the river moved the the scent downstream a little bit, and I crossed where it was way deeper. And so it's not as it's not just a matter that he could outrun us. It's sometimes we're running through thicker brush than he ran through just because that that's where the scent got trapped. That's fascinating. Well, let me ask you another question. Uh, and maybe you don't know the answer, but why did he flee to the Grand Canyon? Was it because there's so many people there he thought it would be harder for the dog to get his scent? I think, well, okay, so the Grand Canyon is just a little north of Flagstaff, and Flagstaff is just a little bit west of Winslow. 
And he had this grievance against the Winslow Police Department initially for putting him in jail in the first place for the bank robbery. He kept saying that he wanted to get even with them. And I think initially that's where he was headed. Why he switched from Flystaff and going into Winslow, I think maybe there was just a little too much heat on him when he kidnapped somebody to get up that way and thought maybe the Grand Canyon would be a place where he could lay low and let things settle down. Nobody would, there'd be no sign of him up there because he's not staying in a hotel, less likely to be sighted and things like that. Um, that that's, that's just a guess on my part. We don't really know how he ended up there. Maybe he just let the people that were they kidnapped go there because they wanted to. But I think he was really looking to get into a place where he could, where he could hide. He was just looking for a place to hide at that point. It ended up turning out, I think this was the longest manhunt. Um, you know, I know it was the longest manhunt in Arizona history uh, that we had as far as trying to locate somebody from, from when they became a fugitive. Uh, 55 days, I think, in total. I can only imagine the manpower, resources, you know, time, commitment, you know, that every yeah. law enforcement agency put out during that time period. Yeah. So one of the things that I talk about that, we had helicopters, and uh, a lot of people know with modern technology, they have FLIR, which is the, it basically tells you the heat signature. You can see, you know, people on the ground uh, that are there. The problem with FLIR is, when he was down by Florence and he had escaped down in the low-lying areas of the desert, Arizona's just too hot. And when Fleer is on, you'd see like a red dot where a human is. But you also see a red dot where the rocks are because they're so hot from the sun. So it's just like looking at a, a, a big spotted board of all these red dots. And it's really hard to pick out people and animals and everything else because half the desert is is lit up as hot as well. Once he got up into Flagstaff in that area, the helicopter said there's too much foliage and it was really hard for FLIR to identify, is that a human, is that a deer, is that an elk? What is it down in there? And those were some of the leads we'd be doing. In fact, we had we even put uh, teams out at night on kind of picket lines, hoping that he would run into them while he was walking through the woods because uh, we didn't know where he was staying. This is before we found out he was in El Tobar Lodge. And we thought he was just trying to survive out in the woods somewhere. So we got in the most likely places where he might uh, travel across some of the canyon areas, and we tried to blockade him there. And uh, Obviously, it was unsuccessful because he was staying inside a hotel room. Absolutely fascinating. I don't want to give him too much credit, like you said, but the fact that somebody who wasn't a Rambo, who wasn't, you know, really... Uh, experience in living off the land was able to escape and be out there for 55 days. Eh, I guess we got to give him a little bit of something. He was definitely committed. He was an individual that didn't care about human life. He he was willing to shoot at people. Uh, he was committed to, like I said, he, he committed several burglaries while he was on the run, staying in people's houses. He stole cars a couple of times and then kidnap people a few times. So in those 55 days, he committed multiple crimes to keep on the run. And and you can't take away from the fact that he was he was dangerous and committed to what he wanted to do. I, I think the thing I was saying is he's not really a survivalist. He's just criminal. And he did all the things that he needed to do to, to stay on the run, but he was always looking for that next target of opportunity to allow him to escape. And he was he was an opportunist in that respect. And, and definitely took advantage of getting a hold of uh, the population, which is 
pretty amazing on that part that he was in the middle of the, the woods and kept running into people. He'd go to the, tra- the campsites. He'd go to the, the, the remote cabins out in the woods. And I'm sure if those people were there, he would might have kidnapped them. But if they weren't there, he'd break in. And in Arizona, a lot of the cabins up in there are summer cabins that people only live in seasonally. So he had the opportunity to get into a lot of places uh, and get supplies and things like that. Now, this was the largest fugitive manhunt for the FBI in Arizona. But you had another case that you could say was the largest, uh, and it was the largest FBI extortion investigation. I'd love to have you back on to to talk about that one, too, because uh, that sounds pretty interesting. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Well, why don't we take a moment to learn a little bit more about you? Why you joined the FBI, when you joined the FBI. Could you share that with us? Sure. My uh, my first exposure to the FBI, as I said, my, my father was a dog handler. My first exposure to the FBI, I was 14 years old, and he was going to a seminar in Tennessee to teach people how to, how to uh, train bloodhounds uh, for law enforcement. And I was asked to go with him and my father asked me to be one of the instructors. So I, I trained all the brand new dogs getting started. There was another instructor that taught some of the other dogs. My father taught all the problem dogs that you would try to fix that weren't doing what they should be doing and things like that. So anyways, during that seminar, I was being hosted by the FBI in Tennessee. And, uh, I remember, uh, one of the FBI, I, I thought it was an agent at the time. I think he turned out to be an investigative uh, analyst, but he came up to me. I think on the second or the third day, I met him the first day, shook hands. On the second or third day there, he saw me and said, hey, Keith, how you doing? Of course, at 14, I didn't realize that my father was pretty important there, and that's why they knew who I was. All I could think of is I, I shook hands with this guy three days ago, and he still remembers my name. These FBI guys, they can remember everybody's name. And I, and I was pretty impressed by that. And that was, my, I think, my first thought when I started thinking that I might want to get into the FBI. Of course, I don't have that ability. I can't remember people's names very well, but I thought that was, I just, the impression you get of professionalism of some of the people in the FBI, that, that's what drew me in. Uh, I ended up instead uh, uh, going to college and uh, getting out of college and joining the Marine Corps. And then after I got out of the Marine Corps, I decided I wanted to go back into uh, federal service and, and law enforcement and continue it that way. And I, that's, that's when I joined the FBI. Now, I was looking at your bio, and it says here that you were nominated for a Medal of Bravery for operations outside of the of the U.S. What's, what's that about? Back when the embassy bombings occurred in Africa, in uh, Nairobi and, Tan- and Tanzania and uh, Kenya, the FBI was sending SWAT teams. Uh, they were rotating them over there to try to be the investigators there, that, uh, obviously, all, all FBI agents that are on SWAT are also investigators. And due to the threat level that was going on in Africa at the time, they didn't want to send anybody that was not tactically trained. So I was sent with uh, with eight other people, actually seven other people, to Kenya. And we uh, we were part of the search team rotating in. I think we replaced the Los Angeles team. While I was there, um, they actually sent us to Uganda which I guess is an interesting aside. I think my passport still says I'm in Uganda. But we flew in through a, through a uh, say, a private plane and got to Uganda, um, ended up meeting with Ugandan secret police, 
conducted a bunch of investigations over there to which our requirements at that time were we could not show any identification. We were not allowed to have our guns out unless absolutely necessary. So we had to keep them hidden. Even when we were going in, we were kicking doors down and, and basically interviewing people uh, the whole time that we were over there. And then we ended up uh, leaving Uganda about 10 days later. And, and that was uh, that was pretty much it. I can't say a whole lot more than that. That's pretty much what we were doing. Uh, but it was all related to the embassy bombings in 1998. You know, every time I do one of these interviews and I just hear about some of the experiences that other agents were were involved in, it just really kind of gives even me as a retired agent a whole new understanding. I know there are over 200 violations that the FBI investigates, but just the vast number of assignments and situations and experiences is really amazing. Oh, I agree. In fact, one of the things I hadn't realized at one point is that the FBI sends people uh, to almost, I don't know if it's still the case, but before I retired, to every bombing that occurs everywhere in the world, uh, someone will go to just because we're trying to gather data to see where we can connect the dots. Well, Chief, I definitely want to have you come back on maybe towards the end of the year to talk about that FBI extortion investigation. I know that you retired in 2011. So what have you been doing since then? Uh, well, two things. I uh, I started a month after I retired from the FBI. I started back as a contractor to the FBI to teach intelligence courses back in, in Virginia for both academy agents and uh, seasoned agents to teach them some of the uh, new uh, techniques we use for intelligence-based courses. I also have my own business. I, uh, I have a private investigation company in Phoenix where I do uh, private investigations, and I also do uh, security assessments, security review for people that uh, are interested in, in uh, doing a, that type of thing. I, I was actually one of the first people in the country to teach active shooter uh, a long, long time ago. In fact, the only person that had taught active shooter to the military prior to Fort Hood. So I teach that now as a civilian model for schools and things like that on how they can do it versus how the law. I used to teach law enforcement on how to respond. Now I teach the, the school administrators and, and students how they should respond as a different class there. What's the name of your company? Tolhurst International. Okay. I'm going to put a link to your website uh, with the show notes for this episode. So if anybody is interested in contacting you, they can uh, they can do that. That's great. Before we go, one of the things I'd like to do is to give my guest the last word. So what would you like to say? I think a lot of things that's probably frustrating, I appreciate uh, podcasts and things like this, because you get, uh, I think, the real information out there. A lot of times we get stuck in the media. Of course, obviously, today you're seeing a lot of that, but the truth of what we do never really gets to be said because you can't, we're not allowed to speak to the media. We're not allowed to put that information out. And a lot of times it's the bad guy or whoever else that's making the suppositions gets to have their side of the story told. And the FBI side never really gets told. And I think that's unfortunate because it gives people the wrong impression about what's going on. So I, I, I appreciate the fact that you do podcasts that gives people the opportunity to see how the FBI actually works. And that's the end of the interview. 
at jerrywilliams.com. You'll find a photo of Keith Tolhurst. You'll find links to newspaper articles about this case and a link to the old FBI files episode about Danny Ray Horning. I hope you enjoyed the interview and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review so that every Thursday morning when you wake up, there'll be a brand new episode waiting for you. I have a book recommendation for you this week. It is Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI by David Gran. Now, I started reading this book. I usually read crime fiction, and this is narrative nonfiction. But I bought the book because three different listeners emailed me to say they thought I would find it interesting. And guess what? I did. It's about part of our Native American history that I wasn't even aware of. It's about the Osage tribe in Oklahoma who became unbelievably wealthy when oil was struck on their reservation. Unscrupulous people began to defraud and cheat them out of their money, systematically murdering tribal members. The other fascinating thing about this tale is that it's one of the cases back in the 1920s worked by the FBI. And it tells the story of a young J. Edgar Hoover and the agents who worked for him. It's a mystery. I mean, who was behind these killings? And it shows the determination of the FBI and their law enforcement partners to solve this case. So again, my my crime book recommendation for this week is Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI by David Gran. And while you're over at Amazon.com, I hope you'll pick up a copy of my crime novels, Pay to Play and Greedy Givers. Books one and two in my FBI Philadelphia Corruption Squad series. And don't forget to sign up for my reader team so that you can be a part of my July It's a Boy, It's a Book giveaway. Details about the giveaway are in my July reader team monthly email. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.